Okay. Um, I didn't have time to get notes printed off for you, so if you do have a QR code reader, you can scan that QR code and you can get the notes and the PowerPoint. If you don't know what a QR code is, then don't worry about it. Very early, every Sunday morning, Saime Tong sets out from her small house in the mountains. She walks for two hours along narrow, winding pathways and village lanes until she gets to the home of her blind friend, Zhao Mei Ying. Taking hold of her arm, she carefully guides her as they walk for another hour. When they reach Luoshui village where their little church is located, they have one more hurdle to overcome. Uh, they have to cross a stream by wobbling across a series of dangerous stepping stones. Their friend recently uh, fell and broke her arm while crossing the stream. Li Yuying, who's 47, makes her journey to the church each week, carrying her two-year-old niece, Li Xiling, on her back. She says the journey is worth it because she is nourished in her faith through the Christian fellowship there. The men and women of Izahu village, we are very hungry for this talk that it will be in our bellies. Please have pity on us. In all other places of the ground, we have heard that they have the talk of God, but us ones in Izahu are still standing without. We have nothing. I have heard of others hearing this talk in other villages, but this talk is not in Izahu yet. So please send some to learn our language and teach us this talk so we can know it too. Please have pity on our lives. We don't know what will become of us when death is on us. So I am asking with a big strong request that you will come to us and teach us of this talk. This is the road that I have heard and will be heard. That is why I have sent this letter to you, boss men of New Tribe's mission. Our language is not hard here in Izahu. Please come. These are two accounts, one from China and one from Papua New Guinea, of people who are so desperate to meet together, to hear God's word. And there are two things that we hear in these accounts that are mirrored in our passage today. The first one is this, a fervent, passionate, unquenchable desire for God's word. And a total commitment to and complete embracing of Christian fellowship. These two things shaped the early church and the world and are still shaping the church and the world today. Today as we look at God's word, let's ask ourselves some serious questions regarding our perspectives on these two things. On fellowship and on God's word. What do we think? How do we engage with these things? What needs to change in our lives? What needs to change in our perspectives? Are we willing to submit ourselves to the Lord and ask him to change things that we've been holding on to, things that we haven't been able to let go, things in our personality that we know need to change. As the Spirit works in our heart today, are we willing to listen to him? Or will we turn a blind eye and convince ourselves that we have nothing to work on? It's a challenging question. It's been challenging for me this week too. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we simply ask today that you would be glorified by our meeting together. And we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear what you were trying to say to us through your word. Help us. Help me, Lord, to be faithful to this passage. And may my words be your words today. In the glorious name of your son, we pray. Amen. My passage has been read for me, which is very nice. Um, so let's open up uh, to Acts chapter 20. And as you know, the story so far, Paul is on his third great missionary journey. He has been to Greece, sailed through Macedonia, we've seen Philippi, and now he's in Troas. And awesomely enough, he's been joined by Dr. Luke, which is great, because he's the author of this book, and it means we'll get some good detail as he was actually there uh, for this part of it. When you reunite with old friends, what do you do? Talk? 
Hug. Laugh. Party. Remember? A barbecue is my kind of go-to. I like a bit of barbecue. Um, but it's all very light, isn't it? It's, not, it's kind of, the Americans would say you shoot the breeze. Kind of, you kind of take it easy. Uh, it's, it's nothing strenuous. Well, we know Paul was reunited with old friends, and uh, he was there a week, and, and his last day uh, was the Lord's Day, Sunday. And so we would expect maybe a good old British roast, a nice meal, lots of nice words about Paul, early to bed, and a nice send-off. Well, that wasn't Paul's style. Oh, man, I always forget this thing. I had some pictures for you. Those are the ladies in China. That's the guy from Papua New Guinea who wrote the letter. Kind of loses its effect, but there you go. That wasn't Paul's style. Paul was a consummate pastor. He lived and breathed the life of a pastor. And this is what we'll see today. We're going to see some aspects of a pastor's heart. What his priorities were. What he spent his time doing. What he expected others to spend their time doing. In this small section that we, that we see the, here from verse 7 uh, through on to um, verse 16... Uh, we see the first element of this heart of a pastor uh, and something that we should see in the life of every Christian, and that is the love of the body. One of the key things we see with Paul is his love of people, love of the brethren. His whole missionary journey, all of his missionary journeys, are one big desire for fellowship and relationship with the churches that he had planted and to reach people for Christ and bring them into the church so he could have fellowship with them as well. And Paul's actions smack a little of the words of the Apostle John uh, in 1 John 1.3, where he says both Paul and John believed that they thought that fellowship is not something that we should just desire, but it should be something that brings joy, that your joy may be full. Fellowship with other believers is something we should desire and should bring us joy. Do we desire to meet together with other believers? Does it excite us? Do we long for it as Paul did? Would we walk two hours to get to church because it meant being with other believers? Rachel and I had an hour commute in Hong Kong. That was quite interesting. Do we desire to follow the words of Galatians 6.10? Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone. And I think the wrong words are highlighted in here, especially to those in the family of the faith. Paul loved the church so greatly that he traveled the world to encourage it and to build it up and to tra- Ooh, I'll come there in a minute and to train it and to make sure that those of the way as it was called then truly loved each other and were together and were caring for each other they Paul wanted them to be meeting together to be breaking bread together to be praying together to be singing together to be teaching God's word faithfully and living it out together Paul would have definitely been at community group every week. He would have definitely been at the church weekend away. He would have been at every men's event. He would have been praying for every woman's event. He would have been doing coffee and tea every opportunity he could. He'd been welcoming. He'd have been taking every single opportunity afforded him to be in relationship and community with God's church. Why? Because he knew how important he was. It was. And he knew that the wolves were starting to close in. And that the church needed to be brought together in unity and strengthened. We're not supposed to live solitary lives as Christians. John 1, 3, 14 goes even further. He goes on to say that loving the brethren is an example or uh, an indicator of salvation. So if we struggle to love the church, if we don't love God's church, 
then ask, that asks some serious questions about us. We are meant to be in community with one another. True fellowship. Where we're in each, in each other's lives more than just on a Sunday. Where we're eating together, meeting together, sharing our struggles and failures together. Challenging each other, encouraging each other, holding each other accountable. The Christian life isn't for the faint-hearted. Paul even challenged Peter, the great Peter, to his face in front of others because he was destroying the unity. Unity was so important. So then you say people always talk about loving one another. Okay, well, we should love one another. Well, what does that look like? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because to answer uh, the question earlier on, what Paul does when he hasn't seen friends for a while, I think is to show us some of what Paul thinks love is, loving the brethren, loving the body is. He does a few things. He breaks bread. And we're in verse 7, by the way. So he breaks bread. uh, He prays. He talks with them. If you go to verse 11, verse 11 says talks. And it's a different word from in verse 7, which suggests um, being in company with. It's not suggesting preaching that time. Talking, uh, kind of, we mentioned that. What's the key thing he does? What's the main thing? What's his main focus? How is his main way of showing love to the body? He teaches them. Paul believed that the best way to love a brother was to teach them. So in verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. So he's got to get up first thing and get on out of there, and he's teaching until midnight. This is his priority. How many of us would be looking at our watches going, I need to go to to bed? But we don't get the sense that that's their reaction, do we? As a teacher, we're taught a lot about the science of communication, and I might not be exhibiting that very well, but uh, we're taught a lot about the science of communication. We're taught about attention spans and things like that. And that all works very well in the classroom. That's fine. But when the Holy Spirit is involved, we're dealing with something else entirely. As Christians, we don't listen to God's word with our ears and our heads only. We listen through the Spirit. The Spirit is working in us. Go to Africa. With some of the services last half a day. That's mainly due to their timekeeping, but that's their last half a day. When my dad used to speak, they, they're saying, no, no, two or three hours. I'm not wanting you to speak for one hour. You go to parts of Asia, China, Philippines. If you try and get away with one hour as a speaker, you, there'll be a riot like, we want our money out of you guys. You know, they, they want you to speak. Go to Korea. Some of their prayer meetings last two hours, let alone their services. When it comes to God's word, we should have a desire to get as much as we can out of it. We should have a desire for it. I'm not suggesting four-hour church services, by the way. I'm just, just so you know. They wanted Paul to keep on going until midnight because they wanted to squeeze as much out of him as they could. Now, This is the point where people say, uh, I know someone who wasn't paying attention. Eutychus. Okay, and uh, I don't think it's a major point in the passage, but I will just say a couple of things about Eutychus. And I'll say a few things. It was late. There were many lamps. Eutychus was a young man, and he was by the window. Okay, so first, there were many lamps because it was dark, late at night, obviously. Um, And I think maybe one of the reasons it was highlighted is because of some of the accusations leveled at Christians at the time, that they were clandestine, that they met in the dark, and they did all these weird things in the dark. Okay, so maybe that's why uh, Luke emphasizes how many lights there were, to show that the Christians were not meeting in the dark, that they weren't having these kind of weird clandestine meetings. But one of the results of these lamps, these oil-burning lamps, would have been the fumes. 
right? So the fumes are going around. Eutychus is there. It's been a long day. He's got all these fumes. He moves to the window to try and uh, clear his eyes a little bit. We're also told told he's a young man, so maybe between the ages of 7 to 14. So he could have been a slave or a servant, so he's worked a long day. Uh, Now he comes and hangs out with Paul till the early hours of the morning. He's got these fumes in his eyes. He's sitting in the window, desperately trying to stay awake, but he loses that battle. Um, And I think uh, in maybe, depending on which version you have, it says he sinks into a sleep. And the suggestion there is not, uh, it's uh, trying to stay awake. Okay, so he's, he's losing his battle with sleep and gravity. And he falls out of the window and he dies. Now Paul is in the middle of his message. How dare this guy die in the middle of my message? Presumably with his power, he could have leant out the window and said, Oi, get back up, come back up here. I don't know how apostles did those kind of things. Maybe he could have done it that way. But Paul loves people so much. He has so much relationship and care. He goes down and he lays on him and he embraces him presumably out of anguish for what's happened. And he comes back to life again. And they're rejoicing. They're encouraged by this amazing example of God's power. What do they do? They say, wow, that was fantastic. Brilliant. Can't top that. Let's all go home and go to bed. No, they don't call it a night there. They still want to be with Paul. So they go back in, they eat some more, and they spend time talking with him until daybreak. That's fellowship, friends. That's love. That's care. For the brethren. Then we get this little section from 13 on to 16, which we're, we're just not, we haven't got time to look at in very much detail. But I'd, I thought I'd highlight one interesting point about this. Why does Paul walk um, to, uh, through, uh, to As- Why does Paul walk to Assos rather than taking the boat? Um, and one of the suggestions could be that he wanted to spend more time with them. Because the tradition of the day would have been that they would see him to the boat um, or see him to his next point of exit from wherever he was leaving. So the suggestion is the guys at Troas maybe wanted to continue walking with him and Paul wanted to continue teaching them for the, for the most, possible chance, uh, most possible time that he could possibly get. He wanted to spend more time with them until midnight, early hours of the morning wasn't enough. He loved them so much he wanted to continue teaching. So it just shows again the heart of the people that they want to get up early and be with him. And his heart, that he loved them so much that he wanted to continue on, even if it meant he was fatigued and tired and had to walk 20 miles. What a relationship. What an example of how important Paul's presence and teaching was to them. The church's perceptions on teaching have varied over the years. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the decadent periods in history of the church have always been those periods where preaching has declined. Well, Paul, being the consummate pastor, didn't let this happen on his watch. He loved his people, so he was going to teach them all he could. So he goes on to Miletus, and he skips Ephesus, and Chris threatened me with death if I showed a map. Um, So just take it for for granted that it would have been longer for him to go into Ephesus, so he went straight down uh, to Miletus. But he loves the Ephesian church. They were his elders. He he pastored there for three years, uh, in verse 31 tells us. So he asked them to make the trip down to Ephesus, which they did. So we come to this next section now, and this is our second primary section from verse 17 to 38. And wow, there's a lot there. But I want to raise a caveat before we delve into this. The passage in my Bible is entitled, Ephesian Elders Exhorted. Some version of that, probably in your Bible. So this is primarily to the elders of the Ephesian church, setting some principles and clear teaching for the elders as under shepherds of the flock. Okay, so this is a passage that is clearly about teaching for elders. 
But this isn't an excuse to turn off our brains and say, well, I'm not an elder, so this has nothing to do with me. Yes, eldership is a specific role that God appointed. It is biblical. It has certain restrictions. It has certain responsibilities. But the principles that elders are required to live by are applicable to all believers as well. Just a quick example of this. First Timothy 2 says, an overseer must be above reproach. An overseer, bishop, pastor, elder, all the same word. But First Peter uh, 1.15 says, be yourselves holy. So elders are told to be above reproach and we're told to be holy. Kind of synonymous, aren't they? Because if, if you're above reproach, then you're holy. And if you're holy, you're above reproach. So we can see that when these, these are specific requirements for elders and they must meet these things to be an elder. But we can also see the application for ourselves as well. We can't just say uh, after this, line up all the elders and we'll take a run at them. We have to look at our own hearts first before we start pointing the finger. We've already said that Paul loves the people and he shows this by teaching them. And if we look at verse 20, we see how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Um, his priority was preaching. And this is the second heart, part of a, of, a, of a pastor's heart, preaching faithfully. And there's tons here that we won't have time to deal with. So um, as with any, if you have any questions, anything you'd like to talk about after the service, I'll sit on the front row. Please come and have a chat with me. I would love uh, to talk, talk this stuff through with you. So what we're going to do is we're going to see six R's. Don't be daunted by this. We're going to move fairly quickly through. We're going to see six R's of preaching faithfully. Remit, reality, result, response, responsibility, reward. So our first one, the remit for, oh, the remit for preaching faithfully. John Piper would call the remit for preaching faithfully a Godward life. Uh, so if we look in verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they had come to them, he said, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plot of the Jews. He says they know his character. They know who he is. And it shows a bit of his relationship with them. He wasn't some aloof pastor that never met with them. They knew him. They knew his real self, not some front that he put on on a Sunday. And what does he say? It says that Paul was a man whose life echoed his preaching. He lived his theology. He lived his doctrine. What he taught from the front, he lived out in his life. And I say that with full understanding of what I'm doing right now. He says to the elders here, if you are to preach faithfully, then you must make sure that your life echoes what you speak. That your life it should show us what we would expect from a follower of Christ. It's so important. We can't live double lives, can we? We can't, we can't do that. We can't say we believe one thing and then do another. Ravi Zacharias said, I have little doubt that the single greatest obstacle to the impact of the gospel has not been its inability to provide answers, but the failure on our part to live it out. And this is especially important for a preacher or a teacher or an elder, isn't it? Uh, we, we're, we've all been aware of these high profile cases where a pastor, uh, a prominent pastor has fallen into sin and it's been publicized. What's the effect that it has on the gospel? Makes it look like a joke, doesn't it? Makes it look like a joke. If we say we believe something and our life is different, anyone who sees us thinks it's a joke. So the remit for preaching faithfully is to practice what we preach, to live a life that echoes Philippians 4.8. And I was sharing this with the guys on Saturday. 
Things that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report. Anything is praiseworthy. Meditate on these things. And the suggestion is if you meditate on these things, then they will play out in your life. This is the remit of preaching faithfully. But there's also a reality of preaching faithfully. And if we look at verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul didn't hesitate to preach. The reality of preaching faithfully is that we need to be ready wherever, whenever, to be able to speak on whatever, which is why one of the requirements of an elder is to be apt to teach. But if we think of ourselves, how often do we hesitate in our evangelism, in reaching out to people, or even just to engage with other Christians? But what does Paul say he taught? So he says he didn't hesitate to teach, but what does it say that he taught? Uh, And your Bible might say anything that's helpful. I'm reading from the NASB, which says profitable. And I think that's helpful because the sense there is, is something that is necessary. He's talking about teaching stuff that is advantageous, that is beneficial to you. Okay, he is not talking about Um, So it means he didn't shy away from teaching what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. It might not be helpful to our ego or to our feelings sometimes, but it might be exactly what we need to hear. In Hong Kong, I was constantly having parent-teacher conferences. And parent-teacher conferences, one of the questions that we got asked so much was, what do I do with my kid? (laughs) Because they were struggling. And we would talk about boundaries and discipline. And then they would say, but my kid gets upset when I lay boundaries down. And their perception was that um, if I upset my kid, I'm being a bad parent. Well, that means I'm a terrible parent. (laughs) This isn't the thinking of the Apostle Paul. It's not the thinking of Jesus, and it's not the thinking of the Apostle John either. Peter fell afoul of this a little bit, didn't he, earlier on in Acts, when he tried to please the Judaizers. And it ended out with him being called out publicly, and he had to repent. Warren Wiersbe made this great statement about Paul. He said, Paul was an ambassador, not a diplomat. An ambassador, not a diplomat. His responsibility was to teach faithfully and not to make people happy or to please men. And Paul speaks directly to this, abbreviated there, in Galatians 1.10. He says, I'm not here to please man. That's not what I'm about. I'm here to teach faithfully. A true pastor's heart is to preach the truth faithfully. That is the most important thing. People pleasing is not the game that we are in. He says to the elders, you must teach everything. And he says later on in verse 27 that you need to teach the whole counsel of God, all the scriptures, everything, every aspect. He says the reality also, he says that the reality of of, of preaching faithfully is declaring the gospel to all, right? To Jews and Greeks, to everybody, to all people. And then he focuses on repentance. So he's not talking about an easy believism. He's not saying, come to church and say you love Jesus and then you're all good. He says repentance, which is a literal 180 degree turn in the opposite direction. It is a life change. It is a complete about face. And it's an about face into the arms of Christ. It's about Jesus. So the reality of preaching faithfully is preaching that is bold. It is not hesitant to speak on all issues at all times to all people. And it must point back to Christ. It must be about him. And it must lead us to repentance. 
It's all about Jesus. Verse 22. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So here we see two more aspects, the result of preaching faithfully and the response to preaching faithfully. Quite simply, the result of preaching faithfully will be twofold. Salvation in some and most definitely opposition in others. The individual, the church, the elder that teaches faithfully will no doubt come under opposition. Especially if they're preaching repentance and Jesus Christ. The world does not want to hear that. And Paul knew this firsthand. He'd been stoned, he'd been chained, he'd been imprisoned. He'd been anything you could possibly think of, basically. Uh, he, he'd been, it had happened to him. And then late next chapter, in verse 20, chapter 21, verse 10, he meets Agabus, who brings more doom and gloom and says, this is going to happen to you. And Paul's response to Agabus is the same response that we see in this verse here. His response, the response within the heart of the person who preaches faithfully is this. They get the sense that their life means nothing to them. The only thing that matters is completing the task that they are called to. The only thing that matters is completing the task that their Lord has set before them. And that task is so clear and so simple and yet so difficult, isn't it? The task we are set is testifying to the good news of God's grace. We are called to testify, to preach out, to bear witness to, be examples of. Our whole lives should, should yell this, should testify to the good news of God's grace. And again, it comes back to Jesus, doesn't it? Why do we live this life? Why do we preach? Why do we have joy? Why do we have fellowship? Is it, it's all possible because of Jesus. It's all for Jesus and it's all in the name of Jesus and it's all in the power of Jesus and his spirit and all because of his sacrifice. So when people look at us, this is our response. Why are you this way? Because of Jesus. Because he's changed my life. He's changed my heart. And yes, we fail and we struggle and we get it wrong. But because of Jesus, we have grace for that. We have that forgiveness. That's why Paul, a man who felt the full force of the world's persecution, was able with such vigor and such conviction to lead this careless life. This, this, he had this careless attitude to his own life. Because the message of Christ, the task of Christ, meant more to him than his own comfort. The challenge, can we, feel, can we say the same? This is what the Ephesian elders were tasked with. Emulate me, Paul says. Don't be worried. Cast your fears on Jesus and run for the task that he has set before you. And to us here in England, what's the worst that will happen? We might get disliked. We might be protested as a church. We, we could be thrown in jail maybe for one day for some of our beliefs. But isn't that worth it? In order to give this, if we truly believe this is the good news, isn't it worth it to be thought of a little bit weird? To share our faith? To save the souls of those around us? So then Paul says, uh, not only is there a response in the heart of the one preaching faithfully, but there's actually a responsibility attached to pre preaching faithfully. And here he says something that I think must have chilled the Ephesian elders 
to the bone. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God with which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Why does he make this declaration? Why does he say this? Why does he say he's free from the blood of men? Well, he says in the text, the reason he is free from the blood of men is he didn't hesitate to proclaim the whole will of God. So then the inference is that had he not proclaimed the whole will of God, he would have been responsible for the blood of men. Well, what does that mean? Very simply, he's saying to the elders, if you hesitate, if you go back to Ephesus and you do not preach all the scriptures on every subject and deal with the issues that your church are facing, if you do not live how I've told you to live, if you do not teach the whole counsel of God, if you do not deal with everything, then you bear some responsibility for those who don't choose Christ and go to hell. That scares the living daylights out of me. I'm sure it would have done for them. Now, what he's not saying is that they'll lose their salvation. That's not what he's saying. But I think it means that one day he's saying they will have to stand before the Lord and give an account for why they shied away from teaching faithfully. I can't imagine that experience. I can't imagine what that would be like. It shows the level of responsibility that elders bear for the flock. uh, And which is also why the church needs to submit to the elders and give them the honor that they deserve. Which can be alien in this day and age. Because we don't submit to anyone, do we? We do what we want. But the Bible clearly tells us, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no benefit to you. There's no getting away from this. Submission to elders is taught so clearly in the New Testament. So let's not make the elders groan, as the verse says. But I wonder for those of us who are not elders, how does this play out? When I... Come to the day of judgment. What will the Lord say about that neighbor, about that friend who I shied away from, from sharing the gospel? I know one name the Lord will say to me. He will say the name Naeem Hussein. Naeem was my best friend. He came from a Muslim family and uh, eventually started coming along and then professed faith. And I had the opportunity to disciple him. I could have met with him. I could have prayed with him. I could have, I could have read the Bible with him. And I didn't. I just carried on in my friendship with him and thought church and youth group was enough. He's now an avid atheist and doesn't even talk to me. The Lord will say that name to me on that day of judgment. And I'm already scared about it. Another responsibility of an elder or a faithful teacher is to keep watch over the flock. We've already seen that elders bear a great responsibility for us. But this also manifests in protection and watchfulness over us and over wrong teaching. And we're told it's those who will, wrong teaching, those who will infiltrate from the outside. But the most dangerous and scary, as he says in verse 30, even those from your own number, those among the church, those who say they are Christians, there will be people who will spread false teaching and who will attack the church. This is why, so yes, it's the elder's job to protect, but they're not all knowing and all seeing. 
They need our help, and which is why we need to know our Bibles and have a strong relationship with the Lord ourselves so that we can help in this. It's also why we need to be a unified congregation, why we genuinely need to love each other, because we're so much harder to attack if we're unified, aren't we? It's happening in my brother's church right now. He raised up maybe uh, six or eight of these young men who are going on for the Lord and who love the Lord and are teaching and preaching and are really changing lives. And they've been systematically attacked by a pastor in the church and they've left the church now and are going elsewhere. We see it in our churches. People who may not know they're working for the enemy, but they are. We have to warn against this. And this is all pretty morbid. It is. It's nasty to think about, but it's a reality. The cool thing, though, is there's a reward of preaching faithfully. And this is a great note to finish on. The reward of preaching faithfully. So, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and the men who are with me. We see here, in, uh, in verse 32, we see an encouragement and an inheritance. We see Paul saying how faithful preaching will encourage and will reap a harvest. But then he kind of, and we'll come back to that. He goes on in verse 33 and he says some weird things. He's like, well, why are you going from encouragement to this, this kind of weird section? So verse 33, and I think what he's saying is in order to receive this inheritance, these are some things that we can't see within an eldership or within our own lives. Verse 33, covetousness. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. He wasn't materialistic. He didn't live that life. That wasn't his priority and his focus. His focus was people and the word and God. So we can't see covetousness. He goes on, verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. Paul, as a, as a, as a preacher, could have very justifiably demanded payment for the work that he did. But he didn't do that. At Ephesus, he, he tent, make, tent made, tent made, I don't know. Um, so he, he earned his own living. Why did he do that? Not because he had anything against being paid as a pastor. That's not the point. The point is to not be a burden to the church. So we can't be covetous and we can't be a burden. And we also can't be lazy. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. The Christian life is not a lazy life. It's a life of devotion and love, and it's a, de- it's a life of devotion and love to other people, not just ourselves, which goes on to the next point, which is selfishness. He says, help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In order to live this life, preach faithfully and love the body. We can't be covetous. We can't be a burden. We can't be lazy and we can't be selfish. And just to clarify, with being a burden, that doesn't mean you can't have struggles, that you can't pull on the resources of the church. That's not what it means. It's those who are false teaching. It's those who are, causing, who are always raising the negative voice and never giving a solution. It's always the ones who are dragging people down. Okay? It's not saying we shouldn't have personal struggles. Of course we do. And, and the Lord wants to help us with those. So back to that inheritance. What is that? I believe we're back to relationship. Our original point. The inheritance among the believers. So if you look, look with me in uh, verse 32. Verse 32. He says, an inheritance among those who are sanctified. So we often think of inheritance in terms of those who are being saved. But that's not what it's talking about. He's saying an inheritance among those who are sanctified. 
So what could that inheritance be other than unity, relationship, fellowship, relationship with each other? This inheritance that we get if we see these things um, in our ministries and in our lives is we see relationship. And we see it echoed in Paul's life, don't we? And we see it so clearly in the next few verses. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced and repeatedly kissed him. What relationship, what love, what care. I, I, uh, my best, one of my best friends is back in Hong Kong and we meet each week to Skype and I was struck this week by how much I missed him. Being with him, being able to talk, go for noodles, as I mentioned before. This is the kind of relationship we're supposed to have. We're supposed to care so much. I love seeing the guys on Friday at football. I love going to men's breakfast on Saturdays. I love coming on Sundays and seeing you guys and seeing these guys. I love meeting with Andrew on Mondays. I just, I, I desire it. I look forward to it. Not always, of course. It's not saying that we're supposed to never spend time with our families and be with each other all the time. But is this our desire? Is this the relationship that we see? So we've seen from a pastor's heart, a love for the body. And that's manifested in preaching faithfully. But how do we do all this? It's very easy to stand up here and say it all, but how do we do it? How does this practically affect our lives? In order to do this, we've got to relinquish control over to the Lord. He's got to have all of us. In order to live as his people, we have to forgive old grievances. Truly forgive in heart and reality and in practice. We must desire to be with each other. We must truly love each other with a love that can only come from Christ. We must be open to leadership, to be led by the Spirit and his word but also by the elders as the overseers appointed by God to this church. We must support them and love them. We also need to have a heart for those who don't know this incredible good news that we have, and we, have a, and we need to have a passion for sharing it with the people around us. All of this, all of this tall order of things can't be done by our will alone. You can't decide, yes, I'm going to go and fulfill this all. I mean, you can, we can try and we're supposed to try. But it happens through the surrendering of our will, of our prejudices, of our, um, our preferences, our comforts, our priorities, our desires. It comes through truly dying to ourselves each day and asking the Lord to take our lives and make them his. And we're going to sing that song now. Take my life and let it be. Let's sing this as a body of believers together. Let's make this wonderful old song our prayer, our true and contemporary prayer. Not one that we just say and that we forget, but one that helps us set some targets from. What am I going to go and do this week differently from last week? And yet we're going to fail every day. But you know what? If we're walking in the way of Christ, there's grace for that. And then we get up and we carry on. So let's stand and sing this incredible song. Take my life and let it be.